Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, lots of chatter about the coronavirus, especially those traveling to and from China. Here's what you need to know. Prince Harry arrived in Canada after divorcing the family. More on his new life. And we talked to an Alberta firefighter who traveled to Australia to help fight the wildfires down there. His story is coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This is kind of spooky and and it reminds us of the days of SARS. Uh, Those of you that remember that outbreak way back when, a sixth person has died from a new virus that has emerged uh, in China. Uh, and it's it's something that has, is, in some are saying, sort of SARS-like. And that's what has a lot of people scare, uh, scared about this uh, virus. To talk more about all of this, Emily Toth-Martin is with us, Ph.D. Associate Professor, Epidemiology, University of Michigan School of Public Health, and is on the line now. Emily, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hi there. Lots of chatter about the coronavirus. Uh, what can you tell us? Why is this so dangerous? Well, there's a lot of excitement about it right now, a lot of attention being paid to it. Um, You're right in that the virus does have some similarities to the SARS virus in 2003 and to the MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus that we saw in 2012. Um, but coronaviruses are a very big family of viruses, and they also, you know, it's also similar to viruses that cause the common cold that we might get every fall. So it's it's pretty early to try to say how serious this is, but people are being pretty cautious because of the possibility that it could be similar to SARS. Are we overhyping this? Is it better to err on the side of caution here? Is all the chatter worth it at this point? Well, I think, you know, there have been, um, in that area of China where there's been a lot of cases, I know there's been 50 cases that have been very severe. And so right now I think that there's, um, it's good to be cautious until we understand more about the virus. The good thing is there's a lot more technology available now than what we had in 2003. So we should be able to understand the virus very quickly and be able to understand how it spreads very quickly compared to what happened in the early 2000s. Uh, we, uh, what is this virus like? We understand it has flu-like symptoms. Uh, do you know if you have it? So people who, right now, the people that we are seeing that have the virus from reports have uh, pneumonia that's pretty serious. Um, however, it being the middle of cold and flu season, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of other viruses that cause similar symptoms. So right now, most of what we know about, you know, who's at risk, who should be worried about it is based on geographic locales. And so that's why you see a lot of these efforts to start screening at airports in different countries, because we're trying to understand what countries the virus might be traveling to. And really, right now, it's been pretty much limited to China, with a few exceptions. So the six deaths have occurred in China. Any cases or any worry in North America regarding this virus? So there's no evidence that the virus is in North America yet. Um, There are a few efforts to start screening people with fevers that are traveling from a specific area of China at a few airports. And that's more of an information gathering exercise so that, you know, if the virus does start to spread into other areas of the world, that we can see that as quickly as possible. Uh, Obviously, we live in an international world, uh, a global village, lots of, of airline travel. Is it just a matter of time before, again, I understand it spreads human to human contact. Is it just a matter of time before? before it does get to North America. It's hard to say. Some of these viruses spread and keep on spreading, like the the MERS coronavirus hasn't been a lot of cases. That's the coronavirus that we saw in 2014, and it's just slowly continued to spread um, with just a handful of cases now every year. But then um, SARS, the example you mentioned from 2003, it burned itself out. So we had a lot of cases, but for a very short period of time, and it actually stayed relatively contained. Uh, you so said that lucky. you said that different different strains of coronavirus. Uh, what is it? What what is a coronavirus? What is this? We use this term a lot. What does it mean? So it's a family of viruses, and it's one of the you know viruses from that family belong to the viruses that cause just the common cold as well mm-hmm. as more severe pneumonias. So it's probably pretty likely that people have had coronaviruses in the last few years. Um, you know, your average person will get infected pretty regularly with corona, the regular coronaviruses that we see, you know, every respiratory season. 
Is this like other outbreaks that we've seen that are flu-related uh, in who this will affect? It's, it normally uh, attacks the, those that, that could be uh, vulnerable to this sort of thing as opposed to the average person. Your thoughts there? It's too soon to say. Um, in those, these early days of new outbreaks, we're always worried about um, healthcare personnel that are treating for, they're treating these new cases. You know, that's our first, that's kind of our first line of concern. Um, it's, it's sort of too early to tell who it's going to affect, but in general, respiratory viruses do always seem to be more seri- um, serious in the very young and the very old and then people with chronic conditions. Is this uh, strain of virus treatable? How do you treat it? What happens when you do or someone re- it gets, uh, gets this disease or gets this mm-hmm. virus? Right. There aren't any antivirals available for coronaviruses. So the treatment is going to be supportive care. Um, and so they'll, they'll make people comfortable and keep them sort of supported and, to, and try to make sure they don't get any bacterial infections on top of it um, until they let, can let the immune system work through the process on its own. How long does would it take for this virus to run its course through the average person? Do we have that? Do we even, do we even have that information yet? We don't know. The typical corona, like the regular coronaviruses we see every year, you'll get better in a few a week to a few days. Um, but it's too soon to, too soon to know for this one. So you talked about airport screening, and obviously uh, airline travel is is uh, certainly the prominent way to spread all of this from country to country, nation to nation. How do you screen for this sort of thing at airports? How do you tell? And is this are these methods effective? Well, so it's really about looking for who has a fever. Um, or you can do, I know um, some airports in Canada are doing questionnaires to ask who has a fever. Um, and so, uh, you know, but the, air, the, um, the airports are doing automated screening. What they do is they set up like a temperature monitor and they look for, it's a thermal scanner that looks for people whose heads are particularly hot as they come off the airplane. And so it's not a particularly good method, but it's a way of um, kind of narrowing down who you want to check in and talk to and see if they've traveled to areas where the, the virus is more common. Now, if you get to the point where you're showing signs such as that, are you pretty much not already effective, uh, affected? And they say many times by that time, your chance of affecting others is, is more limited. Is that, is that the case in this situation? It's hard to know. You know, each virus works a little bit differently in terms of how your symptoms line up with how likely you are to infect other people. And um, so that's something we're going to have to wait. Uh, over the next few weeks, we'll get a lot more information. I think the information about um, the fact that this virus can spread from human to human is relatively new. So we're still learning a lot about that. What are you learning about how China is handling this? How forthright are they about uh, the severity of all of this? I think that they've been very forthright. And I think, um, you know, it's been impressive to see how fast, for instance, the sequence information has become available compared to what happened in the last two coronavirus, you know, big international coronavirus events that we saw. So the technology is moving fast. China does seem to be communicating pretty well. I think it... um, It bears remembering that outbreaks are always complicated. It's always really hard in the early days to figure out who's infected and how fast something is moving. And I think and imagine that they're, you know, struggling to figure that out as well as everybody else. Uh, They say this this the ground zero for this is uh, Wuhan, a provincial capital and transportation hub, 10 million people uh, living there. How would they handle all of this there? So it's interesting. So they think they're doing a lot of screening. Um, and I, I can imagine they're kind of encouraging people with symptoms to avoid, uh, you know, opportunities where they can infect other people. It's going to be a big challenge because we're coming up on the Chinese, the Lunar New Year for China. Um, and so that's a time where you've got a lot of travel throughout yeah. the country. And so I think there's some concern about um, infected people perhaps traveling to other areas. How could, if you are traveling especially to parts of, of the country or parts of the world where this may be more pre- prevalent. How do you protect yourself? We've seen lots of people uh, from this parts of the world in masks. I mean, that's not uncommon for them if the vir- there's a virus outbreak or not. Does that help protect? What can they do? You know, you know masks kind of... Um help if you're in very close contact with somebody. But um, I always recommend people just tend to keep your hands clean. Don't um, don't kind of touch dirty surfaces because, you know, viruses can travel on surfaces just like in the air. Um, and, um, you know, if you are a person, it's, it's, it's more of a control for people who are infected. If you have symptoms, stay out of crowded spaces, cover your cough, you know, avoid infecting other people.
Uh, they say that there's a shortage of masks in this part of the world. Uh, people are trying to to grab them. Is this a false sense of con- of security? Can this do more to harm than help? I don't know if it does any harm, um, although if there's a shortage, it does mean that the masks aren't being prioritized for use, like, for instance, in healthcare settings where we've got people that are coming into close contact with the virus. Um, so I'd like to see, you know, masks prioritized for those types of settings. Um, it's, uh, using a mask isn't going to hurt, but, you know, the data is mixed as to how well it'll actually help. Authorities have confirmed uh, more than 300 cases of the new uh, coronavirus in China, mostly in uh, Wuhan, a provincial capital transportation hub, as I mentioned, where it may have come from a seafood market. Any reason to think this could be spread through the food chain? Or is this, again, mostly human-to-human contact? Um yeah, the, the the cases that are coming out of the, well, you know, some of the, the more recent cases I know haven't had any uh, links that seem to be clear to the market. And so it seems to not be solely limited to cases from the market. There was probably an initial cluster that started there, and it's probably kind of spread out from that place. Um, a lot of times what will happen in these, these live markets or these seafood markets that it's the sort of the processing of the animals or the food that causes, uh, make caused viruses to kind of enter the air and, and be breathed in by people. And so I wouldn't necessarily think that it's moving in the food chain as much as it was sort of being in that one place in time where it was spreading. We remember uh, even here in Ontario when the SARS scare happened that it, it affected even business up here. Uh, what have or did we learn from the whole SARS uh, situation of a few years ago that can help here? I think, you know, we've learned a lot. Well, what SARS has taught us is, frankly, a lot about coronavirus itself. So we've learned a lot now so that we can really, as, as more information come in, as we get more virus samples becoming publicly, the, the information, the genome becoming publicly available, we're going to learn a lot really quickly about how the virus acts and um, kind of what kind of control measures and these same questions we've been talking about, about, you know, how long are you infectious? How likely are you to spread to other people? We should be able to get to those answers faster now that we've experienced what we have with SARS and with MERS. You're talking to, uh, to us from the University of Michigan. Is this a worldwide issue? Is this a discussion that they're having uh, around the world in regard to China? I think everybody's kind of watching and waiting and, and seeing uh, information as it emerges. I think right now it's, you know, it's your average person is at very, very low risk of being infected and everybody's just kind of watching to see how it develops. Should this, uh, should people be uh, wary of traveling in airports, whether they're uh, coming from parts of the world that, that have this or not? I mean, obviously, this transportation hubs are where lots of people gather from all over the world. Uh, what can you do? What should you do if you just are traveling anywhere, whether it's domestically or internationally? I think at the moment, the risk even in airports internationally are pretty low. You know, the, the number of international cases we've seen outside of China are still pretty low. Um, and we'll kind of watch it carefully to see if that develops further. Um, and I think just normal kind of, you know, infection, your usual infection prevention practices. So keep your hands clean, you know, cover your cough and... Um, and try to stay healthy. When will we know when the threat or the concern is over, especially in regard to Wuhan? I mean, will there will will this eventually run its course? What will happen here? Yeah, I think that um you know, either the number of cases will keep increasing and we'll start to see, you know, if it's if it's continuing, we'll start to see more and more countries, um, not just with travel cases, but with spread within those countries. But if that doesn't happen, what we'll start to see is things will kind of stay in that one region in China, kind of the curve will come back down and we'll hear fewer and fewer cases and it'll, it'll burn itself out. Obviously, we're not as concerned geographically being where we are. How much of this is a concern for people within China and specifically within this region? I think within this region of China, within within Wuhan, I think it's um, a little more of a concern so that people should be, you know, um, uh, watching for symptoms and reporting when they have potential symptoms. And then um, people who do show symptoms or people who are sick should, you know, take care not to do too much travel and, and too much interacting with big crowds, crowds of people. Um, 
And I think that's the best that they can do for the time being until we know more about the virus. A sixth person has died from a new virus that is emerging out of China, a person passing away there. Still at this point, not a lot of threat to North America, but certainly reason for concern. Dr. Emily Toth-Martin has been with us, PhD, Associate Professor, Epidemiology, University of Michigan School of Public Health. Emily, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. And again, yesterday, we try to get people from both sides of the pond to comment on this because the monarchists that are on this side of the pond have a little different outlook than they do on uh, the opposite side of the pond. And again, I've, I've told this story a couple of times. Um, uh, we had a, a, a very reputable uh, British journalist on who's been covering the royals, writing books on them for over 30 years. And, you know, uh, I'm reading all the headlines and in, in, uh, in the, the terrible things that they've said about Meghan over the years. And, I, you know, I said to the guy, I said, do you think the U.K. holds any responsibility here? Uh, the media, you know, in the way that uh, she's been treated and such? No, not at all. Bah, 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 bah. And then he goes on to say, you know, she's estranged from her father. She dumped her first husband. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about here. You don't think that's a little over the top? And then he hung up. Well, the call was over, but he was quite abrupt in the hang-up. I didn't get my finger to the phone fast enough. You can say that. Uh, And so I, I think it's hilarious. I think they pay for the royals through their taxes so they can have the ability to to crap on them. And here's one set of royals that said, no, we don't need that. We can generate our own revenue. And no matter how much money you give us, we don't like you. We're not staying. That is a massive slap in the face to the UK. But it doesn't appear that they've learned anything from this. Well, Princess Diana, have they learned anything? And now they're all surprised that the royals have left. And when I talked to the same royal journalist yesterday... It's all Megan's fault. Megan's this, Megan. Harry doesn't have a clue what he's doing. It's like he's it's like he's a person that's been bonked over the head and put a potato sack over his head. He doesn't know where he is. He's not a very smart fellow, I guess. The woman is deciding everything for him. Really? Can't you just accept the fact they don't want to be there? Because you don't treat them very well. And they don't need the money. I think it's. I, I just think it's an interesting, uh, an interesting perspective. Meanwhile, everybody here. Oh yeah, this is great. Nice having you here. We don't want to pay, but it's nice having you here over Christmas. Oh, look at that. The royals are here. Obviously, a sign that something was going on there. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and maybe that's why they're angry because we're kind of happy about it all, giggling. I don't know. And and again, who has the most support here? Will and Kate. Or Harry and Meghan. Who's the biggest royal brand here? And now after this has happened, Harry and Meghan look more like normal commoners than the other two. I don't think this is good for the royal brand at all. And the gray suit should really look inward on how they can better prepare, better help the royals on with their duties. Otherwise, they don't have a gig. Uh, let's bring in Robert Finch, Monarchist League of Canada. He is with us now. Robert, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Robert, I'm sure you've heard me babbling on here. Do I have a point here? I mean, it's it's like they treated them poorly, and then they're upset they left. Is it you me? Do. I think you do have a point, and I think if you... Uh uh, dig down and ask the real reason, the real root cause of uh, this uh, uh, uprooting <laughs> is is precisely that. It's uh, to escape uh, uh, what has been, what has, what can be a very ruthless um, British tabloid press. So, how is this playing in the United Kingdom? Are people happy? Are they sad? It seems as if they enjoy. They complain about having the royals and having to pay for them, but they enjoy using them as a punching bag. Yeah, I think, and I think it all depends on who you would ask. I mean, there would certainly be uh, a lot of people who uh, rightfully have uh, some resentment, uh, people who um, you know are very uh, traditional and 
strong supporters of the monarchy and may look at this as a, as a slight towards the Queen, uh, particularly how the whole thing was uh, sort of handled uh, from the get-go. But then on the other side of the coin, there would be those who say, hey, um, you know, you, do, you have to do what's right for you, and uh, uh, if that means uh, stepping back from uh, official uh, royal life, then, that, hey, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's the way it's going to be. I mean, we have to keep in mind, too, I mean, uh, I, mean, I mean, Harry and Meghan are not the only members of the royal yeah. family in this position. I mean, the Queen's other grandchildren are pretty much in the same boat. Mm-hmm. They, just, they, they, they just have to have a little bit more of a higher profile. So what has been learned here? Will we see a change of process in the monarchy, the way they handle things? I mean, uh, we all remember how what the image was post-Diana uh, and then the early uh, days of, of Charles and, and his new wife. And then all of a sudden the kids came on board and the monarchy sort of shot through the roof. It became very popular. What what have they what have we learned from all of this? What would the monarch, what will the monarchy learn of all of this? Well I, I, well, I think where the monarchy is going in the future. I mean, this is kind of I mean, this situation is kind of consistent with where uh, the monarchy is going in the future. Charles has always expressed a desire to have a, a slimmed down uh, royal family uh, moving forward, and this is an opportunity to do that, quite frankly, um, and sort of keep the focus on that direct. Uh, on the direct heir, so him, uh, William, and uh, William and Catherine's family. So, uh, I, I, you know, this I said going forward as we look, we you know, wave the magic, uh, look in the crystal ball, ten, fifteen, twenty years in the future. Uh, I don't know how much of an impact this is really going to make because uh, the royal family will be largely, and the monarchy as an institution will be largely centered around Charles and William. Uh, many said that they were surprised at all of this. I guess Canadians were surprised to see uh, Harry and Meghan in British Columbia over the holidays. But I can't see any organization like this, any any uh, any family like this, who didn't know what was going on. To me, I interpret it as he told them what was going on. They didn't offer him any options. Therefore, he and obviously thought he would stay. And then all of a sudden, you know, the tide turned and he's gone. Uh, Was there really any surprise here other than the fact that he mentioned it uh, in public without the rest knowing? I think that uh, when we found out that that they were in Canada uh, over the Christmas break, I think that there were a lot of people starting to uh, put two and two together for yeah. sure. Uh, and I mean, I mean, when I first heard the news about uh, about uh, them wanting to step back from royal duties, uh, I mean, I was surprised, but I was not shocked at all. I mean, I, I, I you know, there were there were many people who said this is they were testing the waters, uh, if you will, for many months uh, prior to this, and we're just sort of waiting for the opportune time to do it. They perhaps, you know, depending on who you ask, prematurely chose that time and, uh, and, and, uh, and did it. Uh, and, and, now, and now we're here, here with the consequences. But at the end of the day, the consequences, it's not a, uh, it's, it's, you know, the sky's not falling. Uh, the monarchy is, is strong. Uh, we have members of the royal family living in Canada, at least on a part-time basis. And he so still is their family. And he's still their family. I mean, we have to always keep in mind, too. I mean, you know, the Queen is very close to her grandchildren, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 he's, still, he's still one of her grandkids, right? Obviously, these two, a very popular brand for the monarchy. Some may say the most popular. Are you surprised the palace couldn't come up with some sort of role, some sort of compromise here? Well, I think this is the compromise in a sense. I mean, the, 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 the alternative would have been simply say, you're out, do your own thing, and you're not having any titles, you're not even going to be a part of the family, you're not welcome back. <laughs> kind of what they did with, uh, with uh, King Edward VIII. That's, that, that's not what happened here. They, they, they are still members of the royal family. They're just not working members of the royal family, as I said, similar to, uh, for instance, Princess Anne's children. Uh, there will be times that they will still come together and do things, and who knows how, how, how this plays out. I mean, uh, this, we're, we're, we're kind of sort of experimenting with what, uh, what their roles are going to be here. Um, you know, who's to say six months, uh, 12 months from now, we're not re-examining this and that there is some uh, more official uh, role uh, for them. I said, let's just wait and see and see how it all plays out. Yeah, you bring up a very valid point. This isn't over, is it? I don't think so. As I said, I think that there's a lot of moving pieces to this, yeah. and uh, 
you know, that's, you know I, I look at it from a, from a Canadian's perspective, uh, from a monarchist here in Canada. Uh, this is this is good for us because we, we we have a member we have members of the royal family living here. Everyone wants to live here. Everybody <laughs> wants to live here. We're going to have a member of the royal family who speaks with a Canadian accent. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this, Robert, because obviously, as you mentioned, there are other royals, other cousins, other brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, what have you, that aren't in the official role. They're not the ones standing uh, side by side uh, with the queen during official ceremonies and such. How are they? viewing all of this how are they viewing uh you know the family member who all of a sudden bolted i you know are they sitting questioning gee i didn't know you could do that could we do that like i didn't know you were allowed to take the money and run so to speak you know well i said there would be there would there would be many who uh sort of you know perhaps sympathize uh, perhaps um Say hey, uh, you know this is you know do you do you do what you have to do? It's your young family, and uh, you know, that that perhaps uh, comes into play. I mean, there may be, and then maybe they may others might say, hey, listen, no, you're born in this role. It comes with uh, it comes with uh, some great uh, uh, privileges in life, but it also comes with some responsibilities. So I guess that just depends on how you perceive things. Does this damage the monarchy in, in any way, or in the end, could it help by showing another side of it? I mean, I, you know, again, I think they're a pretty big brand for for yeah. the monarchy. How do you think? How do you see I this moving I forward? Don't, I don't think it damages uh, the monarchy. I think the monarchy is. Uh, I said the monarchy is very strong, and uh, certainly from a Canadian perspective, I think this has the opportunity, at least, to enhance the monarchy uh, because the monarchy is front and center. In the news, and um, you know, usually, usually Canadians don't uh, spend too much time uh, wondering about the monarchy unless we have a royal tour or as a royal wedding or whatnot. Have you? Uh, the last three weeks, two or three weeks, we've been talking nonstop yeah. about this. So this <laughs> this raises the visibility to a level that yeah. that we just haven't had in the past. And I think that can only be a good thing, quite frankly. All right. So what does this mean for Harry and Meghan? Obviously, they've lost their titles. So what what what's the difference between today and last week for them? I think they, they I, I don't know. I think that they still need to figure out that role as to what they want to do. I think that there is a um, perhaps there from, from their perspective there is a new level of privacy or a new level of um, uh, sort of a, a, an official um, way to sort of step back, uh, if you will. So it's all been done now. We'll see how it plays out. Um, and as I said, it's it. it, it it, it all depends on what they're going to actually do. I, I, you know, there's still an opportunity for them to be part of their charities and part of their patronages. All those sort of things will be detailed in the coming weeks and months. Um, for now, though, they get to live life in British Columbia, so that's uh, that's, mm. that's what they're doing. Do you think uh, we've heard reports that uh, you know there's been paparazzi that have tried to rent charter boats and stuff to get you know locals to take them close to the island where they are and la la la? Do you think? this will become a, a circus for them here? Uh, hard to say. I mean, uh, that, would, that would be a, 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 a mean, uh, you know, a sad irony if that is the case, yeah. um, trying to escape uh, that than to only have that intensified. I suspect um, I suspect that will die down, uh, quite frankly, in the in the days and weeks ahead, and as a, sort of a, a sense of normalcy starts to uh, uh, take shape, and I think you'll see less and less of that, especially if um, we see more and more of them just stepping out in the public and doing things. Yeah, uh, the more they do that, the less. Uh, the less um, uh, private and it becomes, and the less likely people are going to chase them for photographs. If, as long, you know. So it, it all depends on how they uh, sort of uh, how they perform and how they go about their day-to-day lives in the coming weeks. And uh, obviously, there's been great concern about costs and security and who's going to cover that and blah blah blah. Uh, I understand Charles for the first year he's paying the freight. Is that accurate at all? I, again, I don't know. I think those sort of details need to be still worked out. I think yeah. that there is certainly um, funding available there from hey, from the bank of dad. <laughs> yeah. um, I, and, and I think that's where, um, you know, one word, that would be my cautionary tale in all this, is I think everybody uh, here from a Canadian perspective is excited about this, but I don't think there's an appetite uh, for the Canadian taxpayer to bear any uh, yeah. costs associated with this. So they will need to uh, come up with some sort of uh, 
some sort of funding arrangement uh, so that uh, the public taxpayer here in Canada is not going to be footing the bill for this because any goodwill uh, that uh, that this uh, has uh, given us we, 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 quite frankly could evaporate quite quickly if that's the case mm. uh, as you mentioned uh, you know I think the monarchy is quite popular still with uh, the kids coming up I mean everyone loves the queen my goodness she keeps trucking along no matter what her age seems like she's ageless in some ways but eventually obviously Charles is going to take over do you think you'll see a slip in popularity when that happens? Again, we know the history there. Um, many have said just go right to William. Uh, how do you think that transition is going to be and and what it will like once eventually she has passed and he is king? It's hard to say as well. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, there's no question that the queen is extremely popular, and that's what happens when you have the same monarch for so long that... that you know that constant uh, in, a, in a sea of change, and the, you know Prince Charles has has, has never been as popular yeah. as uh, his mother, and we we you know we get that. Um, my, my, you know, I think we're already sort of seeing the transition. Uh, we're seeing more and more of uh, Prince Charles, particularly uh, when it comes to overseas duties. Um, it's been a long time since the Queen's been here. We've seen Charles several times uh, in that in that you know in that same uh, time frame. Uh, so when that inevitable time comes, I mean, to be honest, I, I, I don't think there will be a uh, clamoring of uh, people saying, let's get rid of the monarchy. I think there would mm-hmm. be a, a tremendous amount of sadness and mourning, and I think that there would be uh, people sort of uh, rallying around uh, the, the, the family, I mm-hmm. mean, like any uh, grieving family would do. And, and people would basically say, hey, let's, just, let's, let's give the new king a chance and... Uh, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, Harry for Governor General. Will we see that? Are they, or is it like you know what? I had the big gig. I don't need this. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think that's a serious, a serious, uh, uh, a serious uh, proposal. I mean, it might help the security concerns, though. <laughs> address those pretty quickly. <laughs> exactly. Give yeah. him a title. It's like okay, now he's earning his freight. The funny thing is, though, the the numbers that I have seen in polling. Uh, actually indicate that Canadians would be on board with that uh, uh, with that type of proposal. So, um, I, as I said, I, I'm doubtful of it. But again, if you were to uh, if you were to ask me a year ago <laughs> if we would be talking about them living in Canada, I would have thought you were you were crazy. And here we are. Yeah. Uh, so you know, who knows? It'll be interesting to see how the relationship continues on with Harry and William. Uh, obviously, yeah. they were quite tight. Obviously, there's been some um, some conflict here. Some uh, you know, some discussion about where everybody should be going. It'll be interesting if, if those two have lost the ability to just get together whenever they want and chat. Yeah, good question. It's, uh, and, you know, I guess only time will tell. And, hey, sometimes absence makes that heart fonder. So maybe this is just the uh, just what's needed to sort of uh, give a little bit of a break and to see how things play out down the road. Where do you think we'll be uh, one year out from this? A year from now, what are we talking? Are we still talking about this? I think we would, uh, you know, it, it, it depends on how it all goes, but I would suspect that uh, it, they will, you know, the, the, the media scrutiny, the interest will start to subside a little bit. Uh, life will sort of uh, settle down for, for all sides and everybody. Uh, I think you'll see some odd uh, engagements uh, here and there for them while they're in Canada, and I think, again, that benefits us. Uh, I think there will be opportunities for them to go back to the UK and do things as members of the royal family, if not in an official capacity, certainly uh, joining the family for uh, certain things, such as the Queen's Birthday Parade over there, or you know what happens in the event uh, Prince Philip uh, dies, uh, you know, in the yeah, future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they will. It'll be, be fascinating they will, they will to see what. It'll be fascinating to see what happens when they return to the UK next as a couple. Yeah, that would be uh, that. That would be interesting. And uh, as I said, I think you know where you want this to go. In an ideal situation, you would want this to be a situation where they can go travel freely back and forth between Canada and the UK, and no fuss is really made. It just becomes yeah. part of uh, you know sort of when the Queen goes up to Scotland. Oh well, she's up to Scotland. So that would be kind of where if everybody could sort of say this is the you know what's the best case scenario. That would be the best case scenario. Come and go as you as as you are with really not much fuss or no headline news. Robert Finch has been with us, Monarchist League of Canada. Robert, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You have a great day. You too. Uh, Prince Harry arrived in Canada, got everything settled with the fam, and now it's the new life with uh, Meghan Markle on their... I've seen the uh, shots of their place in B.C. Man, unbelievable. Beautiful. And it'll be interesting to see if the people that are trying to rent the charter boats to get up close to take pictures of this uh, beautiful island sort of home... Um, if it's 
reporters from the UK. <laughs> if it's, hey, we got a we got a boatload of Brits we got to take for a tour here. Nobody in Canada cares anymore, but the Brits love this. Uh, who knows? It's going to be interesting to see how this, uh, how they settle in in the next year. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked at length on this show, especially uh, right after, uh, I guess this started right after New Year's, that uh, it, we still really started to become concerned about the fires in Australia and what was going on and, and, and how they were trying to cope with all of this. And we remember talking to uh, experts uh, who had were on their way, who had been sent down, and the emergency resources uh, that were... Uh, that flew out from Canada to go down and help, not so much with the frontline issues, but just managing all of this and trying to relieve the people who were down there. Uh, let's bring in Morgan Kerr, part of the first contingent of Canadians who went down uh, and senior representative for Canadian Resources down there, has just retor- uh, returned from what I understand and is back in Edmonton and Morgan Kerr is with us now. Morgan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So tell us uh, the latest. When you left, what was it like? We understand that the area getting some rain. Correct. The forecast as we were leaving, which was January 9th, uh, was for scattered showers, and that increased, and they actually got quite a bit of rain in some areas of uh, New South Wales where we were stationed uh, while we were down there. So you've been back since January 9th? That's correct, yeah. Okay, so uh, give us a bit of a timeline here. First of all, how did this happen? How did you, well, well, no, let's even go back further. What is your experience? What do you do? Uh, how is what you know and, and what your vocation is a help down there? Tell us about yourself. So I'm the director of wildfire operations in the province of Alberta, and uh, I was chosen to be the senior agency representative through the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre, SIFSI. Uh, has the agreement between themselves and Australia was the instrument that uh, the request came through, and then uh, the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre, CISI, uh, pulled all the member agencies and gathered up. For our group, it was 21 individuals, counting myself. Uh, we left December 3rd and uh, got into New South Wales, got briefed, and all of the Canadians got deployed to different fire centers all around the north end of of New South Wales. Um, We maintained there for a couple of weeks, and then as the hazard shifted further south, they were redeployed as needed uh, wherever there was gaps. And then, of course, I think you saw most of the uh, big fire runs that occurred right around New Year's. So our guys were moving around, uh, getting ready to, to fill in incident management team roles. Uh, in you, New South Wales. Uh, obviously, you're part of the first contingent, 21 people. So once you got briefed and such, did you see those other 21, uh, those other 20, or did they just uh, disperse out to various areas? When did you see them again? Uh, I saw them the second week as part of my role as senior agency rep. I toured around. They were in four locations the second week. Uh, so I was lucky enough that I was able to tour around all four locations and, and see the Canadians, make sure they were doing okay, that uh, their skills and, and qualifications matched the jobs they were being asked to do, and, and they did. I guess that's obviously a great concern for you as a leader, too, is you don't want to get somebody in a situation that they're not equipped to handle. They've, they've got to know what to do there. Correct. Uh, we'd had, SIFSI had had an individual down, uh, taking a look at what they were going to request, and we matched our qualifications and certifications with what they were asking for, and we took... Of course, a group of very well-experienced individuals that could fill multiple roles. They had one role in mind, but they could fill multiple roles. They were flexible enough uh, if their needs changed as we went. So uh, explain in layman's terms for someone who doesn't know this industry at all or how it all works. Uh, obviously, uh, you're a leader with a brigade such as this. What is your role? What do you do? How, how did you fill your days when you were down there? So like I said myself, as as liaison or senior rep, I just was making sure that our guys' welfare was being well taken care of, which it was. The Australians, New South Wales people treated us very well. And that our skills and, and qualifications matched the work we were doing. 
our guys were in incident management team roles in local fire centers, fire control centers, mm-hmm. and they were doing roles like uh, operations, which is making sure that the directions, the plan is being implemented on the ground. Uh, they were doing planning roles, which is developing the plan for tomorrow. They were doing uh, heavy equipment management roles and uh, also some aviation management, so giving direction, monitoring uh, the helicopters and and air tankers that were working on the fires. Many said, uh, and I remember seeing this a couple of weeks ago, that the world should be doing more. We should be sending more equipment, more personnel, more everything just to to shut this thing down. Uh, The logistics, uh, the geographics, where it is, um, what is the difference between fighting a fire there and here, or is a firefighter a firefighter a firefighter? So once you get the, the leadership down there, everybody knows what to do. Uh, the basics of firefighting is is common around the world. I mean, you're you're trying to remove fuel from in front of the fire, or you're trying to cool the fire down. So those basics, no matter where you are, are the same. Luckily, we have worked with the Australians in the past. They've been up to Canada uh, four times, and we've worked together. So uh, we knew we were compatible uh, and interchangeable. Certainly, everywhere you go in the world is different vegetation, which gives you different rates of spread or different mm. spotting distances where the embers fly ahead of the, the fire. But um, with local help and working side by side and shoulder, it, our guys caught on to that stuff pretty quick, too. Uh, does uh, Australia have the experience and everything they need to do this? Was this about uh, showing them or more about relieving them from something that was, you know, obviously very taxing and went on for a long period of time? It was absolutely about relieving. They're very professionals. Their management uh, system works for them. Um, but they've been fighting fire for some since August and September. So uh, they were very tired and and. It's unusual this year, uh, the the breadth of the fire, the scope, the geographic area that's involved and on fire is highly unusual. So they're, they're tired, they needed relief. And um, us going in on the timing that we did, I think we allowed a few extra people to get home with their, their families uh, for Christmas and Boxing Day, and, yeah. and that was a great thing to happen. What was it like for, for you all to be down there on Christmas? Well, it was certainly a little difficult. Everybody that was down has families, and and uh, in my case, it's the first non-white Christmas in my lifetime, and, <laughs> and the first uh, first away from my family. So it was difficult, and certainly everybody reflected a little bit those days. But uh, we were there to help and make sure that they could get a couple extra short hours with their family, and, and that's what we were focused on. Morgan Kerr is with us. Part of the first contingent of Canadians who went down to help the firefighters in Australia has now returned. He's telling us uh, about his experience. Uh, you were saying, Morgan, that you know you, you were going from uh, site to site to site, four different areas. What was it like? Uh, paint us a picture here uh, of how bad it was and, and what it was like for you to be on the ground, ground zero, uh, during all of this. Yeah, um Certainly, it was unusual. I mean, I'm in, I was in a different country driving on the left-hand side of the road, so <laughs> not a lot of time to, to gawk around. Yeah, that's got to throw you off right there, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, But when I was driving, I was uh, struck by, again, how large an area had been impacted over the the months that they've been having fire. And it seemed like I drove for hours through impacted areas and um, just watching the fence lines that have been burnt and, and some of the damage and destruction that went along with that and and thinking of how long they've been going at it. But surprisingly, uh, it's a resilient country. Even stuff that had burned in September is starting to see some green shoots coming through, and, and that was really? interesting for me. Yeah, because I guess you know, for some in the for well in, in the forestry industry, this is all cyclical. It, it you know, I mean, it happens, and then there's recovery. Um, uh, that must make you feel a bit optimistic about all of this. Absolutely, yeah. The the forest will rebound. Certainly, the the people that have lost uh, valuables and and loved ones take a lot longer if they ever do. But yeah. the forest is resilient and, and rebounding. I mean, it it 
lives on fire and eventually uh, it'll come back and and uh, it was showing that already like I say quite a few green shoots coming up and, and some leaves branching out from some of the earlier fires already. What was the mindset of those down there and the citizenry and, and th- that's involved? What, what was the mood like down there? Uh, besides being very tired, um, I think you hear about the Aussie spirit, and, yeah. and I, I think we, we certainly experienced that. They, uh, they like to joke around and, and uh, have a lot of fun, even between us. Sometimes it's a little hard to get some of their jokes because of the accent or how fast <laughs> they talk, but... Uh, once you caught on to that, it was, uh, like I say, they really welcomed us. I mean, it was feel, uh, feel comfortable and, and just joking around and helped relieve the mood and lift their morale as well, but uh, certainly tough people. So when you're down there, I mean, what's life like? Uh, are you living in a camp sort of situation? How do, you, how do they accommodate all of these people? Because we were working in fire control centers, which are all in towns, all of our staff were staying in in uh, good accommodations, mm-hmm. uh, apartments that had been rented or or hotels that had been rented, and then they run twenty four hour shifts in their fire center. So a lot of them have catering that comes in for for decent meals and uh, lots of fruits and vegetables and yeah. and uh, they took like I say real good care of us and themselves. So uh, as you've as you're wrapping this up, and I'm sure you've been telling stories since you got home. Uh, what do you take away from this? What how are how are you a different person in all of this, Morgan? Well, I, th- I think witnessing and, and watching the amount of volunteer effort that they utilize. Like I said, all of their firefighters are are volunteers, and just seeing those people coming back and and putting the time in and the amount of effort. And and uh, like I say, when when they're done the end of the day, it's time to sit around and have a cold glass of water and maybe poke a few jokes at each other and, mm-hmm. and uh, keep chugging through. <laughs> uh, what can Canadians, what can Canada learn from these experiences? Does this help us when you're in the same situation up here? Certainly. I mean, we all use our equipment, our aircraft a little bit different and, and our guys that were doing, dealing with aircraft have brought some stuff back. Uh, some of the strategy and tactics, again, while very similar timing that they employ them and stuff, uh, we, we certainly learned. Uh, the other thing that, that I think not necessarily learned, but reinforced is, is how easily we can integrate somebody from across the globe when they come up here and help or we go down there and uh while it's a big big planet uh the fire community seems to be fairly small it's amazing how when you have a disaster like this how the world comes together we can all learn from that i guess yeah and it makes it a lot easier i walked into the state operations center in new south wales and i knew four people that had been to canada and helped us fight fire already so wow that makes it uh, a lot easier going into a place is there more that the outside world could have done or could be doing to help this? As I mentioned before, there was ch- chatter that we should be sending more equipment, more personnel, more everything. Or is this just one of those situations you manage it and you let nature take its course? I certainly got to manage it. And, and something to consider is uh, while everybody means really well, uh, sending pallet loads of supplies and stuff creates a bit of an issue and i'll relate an example where i was at one of the fire centers and somebody showed up with three pallets of water and said where do you want it and they said well we got to remove these eight pallets of water that were dropped off yesterday yeah so i know everybody wants to help but it's uh it's difficult for an organization that's concentrating on fighting fire like that to then receive that help and distribute it so uh picking the right place to help is important. It is an organized effort and you really have to strategically plan your help, do you not? Absolutely, yeah. Would you do it again? Absolutely. I know they would come up here if we needed them and, and I'd go back down if, uh, if they need us. What did your family and friends have to say about all of this? Uh, certainly missing Christmas put a little bit, bit different wrinkle and, and it was a tough discussion and a tough decision, but uh, they all knew it was the right choice. 
Uh, how do you think uh, Australia views the rest of the world? Who well, obviously they're thankful that they're coming to help, but w- were they surprised that so many were coming to help? I don't know. Surprised, uh, maybe pleasantly surprised with the volume. Uh, they knew that somebody would come if they put the request out, and they did. I think they're a little bit surprised with how much help. Um, from other wildfire agencies has been offered and, and they've accepted. What about traveling there and the distance to get there? I mean, obviously you're there, you're, you're doing uh, stints of 39 days, so it's not like you're just going in for the weekend and coming out. But how taxing is that with it being in another part of the world? It's a very long flight and, and jet lag is a real thing. And that's exactly why we go for the length of time we do. Is It takes a couple of days to get over jet lag. Um, and then we did several shifts um, to make it worthwhile, actually. to uh, it, it would be a very expensive, hard proposition to travel down for a five-day shift. So right. we went down to make sure that we uh, got enough shifts in to make it worthwhile. When you left and, and came back home uh, uh, January 9th-ish, um, did you feel positive about what you were leaving behind? How did you feel leaving this? Well, it's interesting you asked that because that was my one comment is, a big part of me wanted to come home. I was ready to come home, but uh, a part of me was sad to leave uh, because the fires weren't out yet. And are you optimistic about the weather and, and what is going on now? It seems as if things have gotten better. Is that accurate? Uh, it has gotten better now. However, February is generally the start of their fire season. So they've had a very early fire season and It'll depend on how frequent the rains are through the rest of their fire season, whether they'll have uh, enough resources and, and be able to weather the storm. Morgan Kerr has been with us, part of the first contingent of Canadians who went down as a senior representative for Canadian Resources, helping to fight uh, fires in Australia, and Morgan from Edmonton. Morgan, uh, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing the experience. Greatly appreciated, and thanks for making Canada look good. Thank you. All right, take care. That's Morgan Kerr. Uh, Imagine the stories. And you know what? I I think a big part of what Morgan was saying was just the fellowship. Imagine going down to help them with their fires and running into people who they have sent up here to help with ours. I mean, uh, that's incredible. And, and, you know, when you think about it, it it gives you goosebumps to know that uh, there are other parts of the world that uh, will come to your aid when you need it. That's really what it's all about. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.